The scripture reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. It can be found on page 451 in the Black Bibles. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Leslie, so much. And good morning to you. Um, welcome to Christ the King. My name's Clay Holland. I am uh, the associate pastor here at Christ the King, if I haven't met you. Um, John Trapp, who is leading worship, is the senior pastor here at Christ the King. I just point that distinction out to you in case you don't like this sermon. Um, but we're glad you're here. And, and I do want you to know um, that here at Christ the King, I know in the summer, as uh, John has mentioned, um, you know, as a time that a lot of people move to Houston and a lot of time that people are looking at churches. So if you're here and this is your first time, if maybe that you're struggling to believe some of the things that we have sung in our songs or prayed in the prayers, why don't you know you're in the right place? That this is a place where despite what may have appearance that nobody has it together, everybody is in need. Um, and we all need the same thing, and that is the, the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, some for the first time and some continually. And so that's what I hope that you will hear uh, and also receive as we go to God's word now. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a stronghold for the oppressed, that you seek and save the lost like me, like all of us. And I do pray, Father, that, we, uh, that you would provide us courage and hope as we recall your wondrous deeds. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Late June and early July, if, you're, if you like sports, which, which I do, and I, I know that not everyone does, but I do like sports, and, and, and late June and early July is a tough time to be a sports fan because there's not really a whole lot of stuff going on, particularly as it relates to like college football. Uh, you know, there's no spring practice, there's no fall. And so what you're reduced to in, in late June in college football is looking at recruiting. And, well, that's kind of a sad thing to, you know, to kind of look at. And I, but I was looking at it. So, uh, and, and I read this one tweet. Uh, it was embedded in another article. 
And this tweet said this. This was yesterday, mind you. The tweet said, today marks the one-year anniversary of Arch Manning's commitment to the University of Texas. And I thought, it really is dead sports time. If we're, if we're celebrating anniversary of a, of a verbal commitment, I mean, but it did get me, it served its purpose because it got me longing, right, for the fall and for actual college football. And if you're a college football fan, you know, or, or you know, just somebody has a casual, you know, interest in it, somebody could ask you, hey, what's a college football game like? Now, that's an interesting question because the answer to that question depends on your perspective, right? Because maybe your only exposure to a, to a college football game is sitting on your sofa watching this game and your awesome high-def TV, you know, in your den where you can see all the plays crisply and, you know, all the penalties they rewind five times. And you're, so your perspective is, man, I can see all the great stuff that I need to see and as many times as I want to. That's, that's one perspective. Or maybe you've been to a game and if you've been to a game like me, you sit way, 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 way up in the nosebleed section and you kind of peer over and you go I'm not exactly sure what's happening here there's these like little ant like things uh and they're wearing different colors and they're running into each other then they're lining up from each other and then they're doing again that's that's another perspective maybe you sit closer though or you've been on the sideline but not as a participant and you think oh college football is like people that are way bigger than I thought they were and way faster than I thought they were, running into each other way harder than I thought they were. That's another perspective. But maybe you're on the field. Maybe you're on the field participating. That's another perspective, in which case you would say, well, college football is a lot of hard work. Sometimes it's exhilarating. Sometimes it's heartbreaking. Sometimes it's painful. That's another perspective. All of these things are true, but they all depend on your perspective. Now, Here's another question. What is your life like? Or what is life in general like? What is life like? Well, again, that depends on our perspective. Because if I asked you that question right now, maybe things are going really smoothly in your life. You know, it's summertime, the kids are out of school, you're getting ready to go on an awesome vacation to someplace much cooler than this, and you're thinking, you know, things are, things are good. But you could have another perspective because you might just be in it right now. You might just be in the thick of it right now, caring for your aging parents or having extreme health issues of your own. Maybe you're struggling with and, and heartbroken over rebellious children walking away from the Lord. Or you have a deeply stressed marriage, but you're trying to hide it from everybody else and you're struggling in that all by yourself. Maybe you're suffering in a prolonged period of grief or secret infertility or unmet relational longings. It's a very different perspective as to what life is really like. And to be honest, it's much more akin to the perspective that David had when he was writing Psalm 9. And that is the reason that the Bible is so critical in our lives. Because there's another perspective that is outside of us. And we need that other perspective that is outside of us. And that perspective requires faith to grasp hold of. Because Psalm 9 looks at the, at the reality of pain and suffering in this life from the perspective of God. Who knows that pain and suffering. 
but is not aloof to that pain and suffering. He actually enters into that pain and suffering and is involved in it. The outcome of having this kind of biblical perspective in our lives is hope. Hope. Hope is the ability to live in the presence in light of the certainty of the future. And what hope does in your life is it provides you courage. It provides you courage to live with faithfulness in this life, even though things are really, really, really hard. So how do we have confidence and hope in our lives? Those are the questions of Psalm 9. This morning, we're only going to look at the first half of it uh, due to, to, to time and some other things going on this morning. But the answer that we find is this in the first half of Psalm 9 is that we find hope in the Lord by remembering, by recalling and recounting God's great deeds. How has God behaved in the past? That informs our lives for the future. Look at verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Now, if you read the Psalms all the way through, Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, this exact phrase, or a phrase that is very much like it, is repeated a lot. But that's because the Psalms encourage you, in the midst of whatever circumstance that you are in, to remember God's goodness in your life. And to draw strength from that remembrance. And to draw hope and faithfulness for the future. So there are three things particularly that the psalmist encourages us to remember and dwell on this morning. The first is this. God has defeated his enemies. God has defeated his enemies. Now, this is actually written in Psalm 9 from the perspective of God defeating David's enemies. And we'll talk about this in just a second. But we see this in verse 3 when the psalmist writes, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. He repeats this in a different way in verse 6. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Now, when the psalmist, this is important, when the psalmist talks about his enemies, he's not just talking about people that he doesn't like. He's not just talking about people that are mean to him. He's not just talking about clear, only, only about his own personal enemies. We have to remember that Psalm 9, when written by David, attributed by David, who was the king over Israel, that is a particular role that nobody else plays. David was God's particularly chosen and particularly anointed king over his particularly chosen and particularly anointed people. And David's job was to intercede, was to represent the rule of God on behalf of Israel. That is completely different from our human leaders today. That is not what the President of the United States does. That is not what the Governor of Texas does. It is what the King of Israel did. Chosen by God, anointed by God to represent God and his work to his particularly anointed people. So why do I bring that up? It's because when David talks about God defeating his enemies... He is actually talking about God defeating his own enemies. Because the enemies that were set against the particularly anointed king over Israel were the enemies that were seeking to do damage and to do hurt to the purposes of God in the world. So who are 
our enemies now. Think about that clearly and, and think about that. You know, in our politicized climate, this question is very often answered in simplistic ways. That my enemies are anybody who disagrees with me. You know, my enemies are anyone who would dare to question me on Twitter or something like that. But we need to think more critically about that in the context of Psalm 9. Because ultimately Psalm 9 is talking about people who are actively working to defeat the purposes of God in the world. They are trying to root out and destroy God's purposes in the world. There are those that scoff at God and scoff at his people. They take a vested interest in trying to thwart the manifestations of his character in the world. So, for example, we'll see in this psalm later on that justice, which means doing the right thing at the right time, regardless of the social standing or the power of the people involved, justice is a particular concern of God. So, those who would form relationships with elderly people or people who are suffering from you know, particular uh, ailments only to swindle them out of their life savings, they are actively and purposefully working against justice and against the purposes of God. They're trying to thwart his purposes in the world. We'll also see later on in this psalm that, that God has a heart for the oppressed. Now the oppressed are those who are getting crushed by the weight of those who are stronger than them for the purpose for those who are stronger than them can gain more strength for themselves. They are using other people for their own strength and their own glory. God has a concern for that. And so those who target the vulnerable, traffic them sexually for their own purposes and their own enrichment are working against the purposes of God in the world. And God really does care about that. I want us to stop here for just a second and think for and, and think for a moment because this raises a common objection um, to Christianity. It raises a common objection to the way people think about the God of the Bible because a lot of people really they, they like to think about God's love and they're okay with that, but they don't like to think about God's justice or His judgment. And the, the common objection is, well, you know, if, if there really is a God, wouldn't he just love everybody? Wouldn't he just love everybody? And the, and the Bible wouldn't talk about, you know, this, this justice, this judgment, this defeat or evil. But I think C.S. Lewis was on to something 80 years ago. Uh, 80 years ago, C.S. Lewis uh, had a series of lectures that were then encapsulated into a book that has come to be known as Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, he had a line where he said something like uh, that a God who has no concern for evil would be a God that is not worth our worship. A God who has no concern for evil in the world would be a God that is not worth worshiping. Now, he wrote those words, or spoke those words first, during World War II, when there were people in England saying, oh, God is a God of love, and he would never, you know, he just loves everybody. He's going to overlook everything. And, and C.S. Lewis is like, really, well, why are we not overlooking, you know, what Hitler is doing in Germany and the atrocities that he is committing? Why do we look at him and say, this person is evil and doing evil? And we're doing something about it. 
Why is that? And why would we say that God would not be even more concerned about evil and doing something about evil? See, what C.S. Lewis says, and I believe is true, is that God has implanted in every human heart, every human heart, because we're created in the image of God, a sense that there are things in this world that are good and there are things in this world that are evil. That there's right in this world and there's wrong in this world. We just happen, we, we, we happen because we're human and we live in rebellion against God, we happen to disagree about what those things are. But not in their existence. Not in the existence of right and wrong, simply in the standard of right and wrong. And truly everybody believes this. Even people who deny that they believe this, believe this. In fact, in their denial of believing this, they're sort of believing it. I mean, right now, we do have a cultural fascination. Doesn't matter kind of where you sit on the spectrum of all kinds of different things. We have a, a cultural fascination with, with what I would like to call shunning, you know. There's, it goes by different names, you know, canceling, uh, boycotting, all of these different things that are a way of shunning people that we disagree with. But, you know, this whole thing about shunning in our culture means one thing. There is right and there is wrong. And if you are wrong, you're going to get pushed off to the side. And I'm going to be the standard of determining those things that are right and wrong. So while the standards for such shunning are they're wildly divergent, the point of agreement lies in the principle of right and wrong, good and evil. You are wrong, and you must be moved to the side. You are evil, you must be stopped. We're, we all know, we all know that evil exists. Every human being really, really knows that. I agree with Lewis that we know this, even if we misunderstand and misuse this knowledge because God has implanted into every human heart a little bit of his character because we are created in his image. But on our own, we will be divergent with respect to the standards of good and evil unless God reveals to us what they are. And this he does in his word, the Bible. And this he does in the word made flesh in Jesus, his son. And so when God says, when David says that God has defeated his enemies, he's defeated those and is defeating those who are working against the purposes of God in the world. And we need a God who will do that. We want a God who will do that. And we need to remember the times that God has done that and has promised to do it as one of the manifestations of his character, one of his great and wondrous deeds. The second great and wondrous deed of God is that he has established justice. We see this in verse four. For you have maintained my just cause. You've sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Now, justice is an individual matter. David is saying that God has maintained uh, his right cause with respect to him, and that's important for us. It's also a corporate and collective matter. Remember, this verse particularly refers to God protecting the king of Israel from those who would attack him because attacking him is attacking God's people. And so rescuing him is, in a sense, rescuing his people. And I want us to see that in this 
context, in the context that we live in now, on the other side of the cross, this speaks about God protecting and caring for his people, the church. The evil one is always on the lookout for ways to cause cracks and divisions in the people of God in the church. Frankly, just the the mere existence of so many different denominations uh, in this country and even around the world are evidence of the church's human propensity towards disunity. And of course, so is our own lack of charity with one another. Charity is a Charity is a, uh, a, a, fruit, a, 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 a work of the Spirit in our lives that is hard to come by now because, because charity means that, that we, we default to thinking the best of our brother and sister in Christ rather than defaulting to thinking the worst of our brother and sister in Christ. And in the day of the hot take, charity is tough. Because, you, you know, because to have charity means you can't kind of get in there first you know, with, your, with your take. And you can't just react like, like automatically on emotion. Charity's thinking the best of your brother or sister in Christ. Our lack of charity toward one another. Our lack of repentance when we have wronged a brother or sister. Just thinking we'll sweep that under the rug or it'll be forgotten. Or frustration with something that happens that doesn't meet our liking that turns into gossip or then turns into bitterness. God has established justice for his people. And he, he cares for us in those things. And one of the ways that God protects his church is by providing servant leaders for his church. This morning, right after this sermon, we're going to ordain and install new elders and deacons at Christ the King. These are very imperfect people. These are human beings. But they are those who have been called by God and elected by you to give of themselves, to pour themselves out, to give themselves up for the sake of the church. Now the broad distinction between elders and deacons is that elders provide spiritual care and govern the church while deacons exercise the ministry of mercy and service to the members of the church. But at heart, at heart, both elders and deacons are called to follow the model of Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I want to encourage those of you who are being ordained and installed into these offices this morning, I want to encourage you of your role of standing in the gap between those who would do harm to God's people, the church, and the flock. The wolves and the sheep. I want to stand in the gap between the wolves and the sheep. The great wolf, the evil one who really wants to destroy the church, and those who act on his behalf, and the sheep, the people of God. One of the things that that means, elders, deacons, it means that sometimes you're going to get bitten by the wolves. Sometimes you're going to get attacked. You're going to get bitten by the wolves. And actually, truthfully, if you are truly faithful as a leader, sometimes you're going to get bitten by the sheep. Sheep have teeth, and sometimes they bite. But ultimately, you are not here at your own initiative but because of God's call to pour yourself out for the good of others as you are given the very spirit of Christ who did exactly the same thing yet in giving his life on a scale that we could never imagine or never never measure up to 
Finally, and this is not a preacher's finally. This, is, this means I'm really about to finish. Finally, the last thing we're called to remember, God has come to the aid of the oppressed. Look at verse nine. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Again, oppression means that the strong are preying on the weak and vulnerable in order to increase their strength, their standing, their riches at the other person's expense. Given the fact that the God of the universe voluntarily gave up his strength to come down from heaven to earth to rescue weak and vulnerable people like us, we can see that this, 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 this human oppression is polar opposite of God's purposes and desire for humanity. God delights in using his strength to lift up the oppressed. It is a representation of his marvelous deeds. Now obviously this has great global and very big picture implications that God does care about the oppressed in this world, the poor in this world. This morning we have prayed for Houston Welcomes Refugees, a a mission partner that cares about those who are suffering great injustice and oppression in their own lands and coming uh, to to, to try to find a a place where there's less oppression in, 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 in their lives. God cares about those things. He calls us to care about them as well. But it is also true that this will meet you on the road of your own life. It is not, God does not only care about the oppressed, he does care about the oppressed at the global and big picture level, but he does not only care about the oppressed at the global and the big picture level. He cares about you too when you are worn and beat down spiritually, when you are doubting his goodness, when you are under the attack of another person unjustly and they are attacking your character even though those things are not true you're just sad and you're thinking about giving up God cares about that too and he meets you in those things have you ever gotten a text out of the blue from someone just telling you like hey I don't know why you were on my mind today, and I just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you. Simple text, couple of sentences, out of the blue, just when you needed it, even though you don't even know that they knew that you needed that at that time. If you ever, is something like that ever happened to you? That's not a coincidence. You don't get off the phone at that moment and say, huh, weird. You go, God is caring for me. In that, that's God caring for you. Have you ever been in a worship service and been so struck by the words of a song, or so struck by the words of a prayer, or so struck by the the content of a sermon that meet you just where you were struggling and, and made you feel like you were very much less alone in what you were going through? That's God coming to your aid. The text that you get on the anniversary of a very joyful event in your life or the anniversary of a deeply painful event in your life. Maybe the DoorDash just randomly shows up with fajitas and queso when you're at your wit's end or the article or the podcast that comes your way and brings you insight and hope. The phone call that you get that ends with, hey, look, before we hang up, can I just pray for you right now before we get off the phone? 
These kinds of things are small, right? Tiny things. But don't discount them. Don't just write them off as coincidences. This is very often how God shows up to care for the oppressed. Through his people, which the Bible calls his body. And so at its root, it's him. And of course, the most powerful of God's wonderful deeds, the most powerful way that God has shown up is actually to show up in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus who defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death. Jesus who sits at the right hand of God the Father establishing justice. Jesus, our great high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin, who is with you, who walks with you, who is with you, united to you in all of the ups and all of the downs of this life, who is with you into all eternity. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. God, we thank you that you have indeed accomplished wonderful and marvelous deeds. Help us to recall those, to bring them to mind, Father, in the struggles of this world, that you would provide us hope and courage to persevere. And we ask it in your precious name. Amen.